Welcome to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate. The show that gives you inside access to how retail real estate's most successful leaders went from being an average Joe Schmo to the CEO. I'm your host, Aaron Zucker. Hey everyone, before we get started, I wanted to take a quick second to thank the guys at CASCM for making this podcast happen. They've brought Limitless from an idea to making it a reality, and I can't thank them enough for support along the way. If you're looking to get going on your own content creation journey or need help with your marketing, I'd strongly encourage you to reach out to them at kazcm.com. If you were wondering what a prototypical path looks like for someone who wants to be an influential leader on the retailer side of commercial real estate, you've come to the right place. Jeff Morrow, who now serves as the vice president of real estate for the entire country for Burlington stores, flawlessly executed on learning the business, performing in different roles with different sized companies, and leveraged his Rolodex of relationships perfectly to get to where he is today. And just like the majority of our other guests on the show, his career path certainly entailed a major curveball. To hear how he navigated potential disaster, how he rose to the top of the retailer food chain and more, check out my conversation with Jeff Morrow right now. I am pleased to welcome the one and only Jeff Morrow, who is the VP of Real Estate at Burlington Stores. Jeff, how are you doing? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, anytime. So tell us, where are you from? How did you grow up? I'm from Texas, born and uh, raised in the Fort Worth area. So born in Fort Worth and a couple of years in, my family moved out to Alito, small town just west of Fort Worth. Idyllic little small town, like you pull into the gas station and the guy would fill up your car and you get the bill at the end of the month. It was pretty cool little small Texas town at the time. I still remember how it's the old little downtown and you go and they give you candy when you get your hair cut. It was great. So we lived out there all through high school. Nice. You said you were born in Fort Worth and then relocated out there? We lived in Fort Worth, and then as we got a little bit older, my brother was born about a couple of years, so two years younger than I am. So around his birth, we moved out to a new house out in Lido, and I guess it's a great school district, and uh, grew up and in, in did uh, high school and whatnot out there. And then they moved away right after I completed high school. So my brother stayed with my grandparents and finished there as well. But yeah, idyllic little town. Gotcha. So what triggered the move out there in the first place other than the schools? I think it was great schools. I've been talking to my parents. They wanted to be, get out of the city a little bit. I think that was the trend in the late 70s, early 80s. And just get out of town and get a, a nice house for the money out there. And it was still close enough. My dad would commute into work every day. And my mom uh, was a stay-at-home mom until we were a little older. And then she started working again. Yeah, it's a perfect segue into what I was going to ask you next. So what did your parents do? I know your mom stayed at home until you guys were older. What did she transition into? And what did your dad do? Yeah, so actually my mom was really involved with Child Protective Services in Texas prior to my birth. So she was really involved in that. And I think she ran the county office for that before she retired to raise children. And then my dad was in trucking. So he started really right out of high school, went to work at a truck freight line and worked his way up through the years to drove a truck, ended up running the docks of the truck, went in the office and retired with FedEx Freight as an executive for 30, 40 years later. So he literally worked his way from the ground up to be a VP and executive. Wow. And you mentioned before a brother who's a couple of years younger sibling situation. What was that like? Great. Yeah, we're still close. He lives in Trophy Club just north of here. And we're all family still really close. We all get together on the holidays and, and get to catch up and tailgate. And he went to Tech. I went to North Texas. So we get to, to root against each other's schools for fun. So there you go. And to clarify, Texas Tech is what you were alluding to when you said Tech, I assume. And he went to Texas Tech. That's correct. Got it. Got it. You never beat him up at all or anything being two and a half years older, did you? Nah, come on. Not anymore that you could handle. <laughs> How were you as a student? I was your typical real estate guy, right? Probably BC student. Maybe a few more C's than B's early on in my career. But I tried to get it together in college. And I was more of a B student only once I got to North Texas. What did you do extracurricularly-wise growing up? You know, I did all the typical stuff. Uh, when I was younger, I played baseball, a little bit of soccer... But as I got older, I was too thin. I shot up really quickly and was too thin to play football. I would have been killed on the field. So did really ran for fun. And then I got involved in scouting. So did quite a bit with the uh, scouting program as well. Oh, really? Tell us more about that. Yeah. So I joined scouts. My mom had a center when we were young. And then uh, went into boy scouting whenever that is, 12 or 13, I guess. It's just the rough age. And stuck with that for quite a few years and became an Eagle Scout. And then went on to exploring, which is a older group of scouts, kind of learned to do other things and then more high adventure and backpacking and all that fun. 
I became a camp counselor. So for a lot of summers in high school, I would work at a summer camp out west of town. And then eventually was a program director when I went to college of a uh, very large summer camp up in Bridgeport, Texas. Oh, that's awesome. So it was a lot of fun. That's amazing. Yeah, it's a great program. It really is. It teaches you the foundation for a successful career in business as well. It's a phenomenal program. Yeah, I can't let you get away with making that comment and then not sort of alluding to what some of those you know, characteristics or skill sets that you learned through that and how it's helped shape you today. Yeah, so the program set up for uh, youth leadership. So you're allowed to fail. They let you learn, feel your way and fumble your way through it. As long as you don't get killed, the guideline for the adults is just to stay out of the way and make sure they don't kill each other. But at the end of the day, it's a pretty regimented program. It teaches you the skill sets you need, gives you the opportunity at a younger age than most people have to get out and speak in public to take on leadership roles. You lead your troop from a young level into campouts and whatever other events happen. And when you fail, you don't plan, you don't eat, right? It's brutal to be around a cold campfire and nobody has food. Now, luckily, the adults generally have a little something waiting on the side in case, but you learn your lessons quickly in the program. And then as you advance and you get older, there's other opportunities to get involved and whatnot as well. So It sounds like an incredible experience. I couldn't help but break out in hives when you said something along the lines of, when you fail to plan, you don't eat. Yeah. It sounds like being a real estate <laughs> entrepreneur, which I can certainly relate to. A lot of similarities there, I think. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. So I'm sorry if I threw you off with a weird face while you were explaining that. It wasn't had nothing to do with anything that you were talking about, how wonderful your experience was. No, not at all. What made you choose North Texas? And what did you study there? You know, I was looking at it. They had a great real estate program. So I did business and communications, but took some real estate courses as well. And there's a great program there that a lot of the folks that I ended up working with later in my career came out of as well. But overall, it was just a great school. I had a great time there. I kind of commuted. I didn't live on campus, but I lived in Fort Worth and commuted up to North Texas. But at the time, it was more of a commuter school. Now it's it's actually got a true on-campus presence and I think a little more of a football program than it did when I was there. But great overall school, great environment. I, at one point, I wanted to consider going into radio and they have a radio station, a radio program, comm program there as well. So that was appealing to me at the time. Ended up not going down that path, but it certainly was one of the reasons I chose the school. A couple of things to unwind there. First of all, you have a great radio voice. I've had the <laughs> opportunity to socialize with you and you've got this deep, soothing voice that also happens to say a lot of great things when you talk. So we appreciate that. But on a more serious note, you said something about having a really good real estate program. That assumes that you studied real estate in college. You didn't mention any of that in your upbringing with your parents. How did you even get the bug to want to get into the industry? You know, it was an idea. I didn't know really that's what I wanted to do. I know that one of my good friend's father was vice president of real estate for the Bombay company back in the 80s. And he was traveling all over, an internal real estate guy, and had a pretty great life and uh, was a great character as well. He ended up being one of my mentors in the business, named Stephen King. Not the writer, but he would sign an autograph for you if you ask him to. And you never <laughs> knew the difference. Yeah. So I just kind of a buddy's dad and saw what he did and thought that was kind of a cool opportunity. Really didn't know that's what I wanted to do, but Real estate seemed to be an interesting piece of it. So it was more business classes and communication classes originally. So I didn't graduate with a real estate degree, but there was certainly some of the electives I took were in real estate. You said your friend's dad worked for which company again? It was the Bombay company. Okay. No longer around. I think they were around until maybe 2006 or eight. I think they closed up shop. Now they're an online catalog business. Got it. Okay, cool. So you have some success as a student, obviously. At North Texas, you're having a great time. You're taking classes that you're interested in. Obviously, meet your friend's dad, who opens up your realm of possibilities, if you will, to getting into commercial real estate. What happens upon graduation or leading up to it? Yeah. So I fumbled around through college with a bunch of random jobs. Like I worked for the Texas Rangers and the museum offices and had a lot of fun doing that. And then I went on and managed a bar for a restaurant near TCU's campus. And I realized, okay, this is all fun stuff, but not really where I want my career to go. So I went kind of back and was talking to him as a mentor and realized what he did. And Radio Shack just happened to be hiring real estate managers at the time. This would have been around 2000. And in spring 2001, they had a a position open. The girl I was dating knew someone who worked in the department. And she said, you'd be great at this. You should come in and interview. And so I went and met with Mark Collinger, Andy Seinfeld, a bunch of folks who were icons in the business at the time from Radio Shack. I met with those guys and luckily came out of there with a job. So 
I started as a leasing rep right out of college. Great setup, really great educational program. I can't speak more highly of the setup that Radio Shack had for incoming college graduates. They really set up a phenomenal training program. I call it my MBA in commercial real estate. Wow. I definitely want to drill into that because I think we've had so many guests come in and talk about... Yeah, my training was I was handing a phone and a computer. Yeah. Or even less, depending on when they got into the industry. But before we get into the training program and what that first role was like for you at Radio Shack, this is going to make both of us cringe a little bit, perhaps you more so than myself. We have listeners who have never heard of Radio Shack. What was Radio Shack? <laughs> well, I hear it's coming back. The rumor is they're actually going to start growing again. They've come back from the dead. But Radio Shack was Best Buy before Best Buy existed, I guess is the best way to put it. And I didn't even know what a Radio Shack was. As part of the indoctrination, as you start with the company, you learn that a Radio Shack was the biggest communication building on the top of ships back in the old days. And they would like Morse code wire back and forth for communications. So way back in, the, I think it was the 1940s or 30s, the first Radio Shack opened in Boston. And it was, I guess, fuses and whatnot for radios and eventually televisions, I guess. And then they evolved into, I guess, through the 60s, selling parts and pieces and widgets for guys who like to build their own computers before computers existed. And then Charlie Tandy bought the business and I want to say late 60s, early 70s, and moved it to Fort Worth from Boston and then blew it up and grew Radio Shack as the household name that it became where it was on almost every street corner. I think we had 7,200 stores when I started working at Radio Shack nationwide. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it was a much smaller scaled down version of Best Buy or Circuit City. You could go in, you could get a TV, you could get a CB radio. I think they made all their money in the 70s on CB radios. And then on in the 90s, was like cell phones. But yeah, they always had the little widget and they always had specially trained folks that kind of knew how to fix your problem. Love it. Thank you for the perspective there and educating a little bit of a retail history lesson for our listeners out there that (laughs) don't have as much experience as us, I'll say. So the other theme I picked up on is so far, you're two for two on your exposure to real estate and the connectivity to your first job being through relationships. Thought that was an interesting observation. And obviously, I have the advantage of getting to know you a little bit over the last few months, years, whatever it may be that we've known each other. And everybody seems to know you and speaks highly of you. How critical have relationships been in your career path? Because there's two obvious glaring things already to start. I think it's the most critical thing for any of us in this sector of the industry. I mean, it's you have to know what you're doing. But at the end of the day, it's the relationships that when you get into a spot, you have to be able to pick up the phone and and resolve it. And you got to return calls. You got to just stay on top of managing your relationships intentionally. It can't be haphazard. You can't fumble about with it. It's the most important thing we do. No doubt. Okay, so you talked about the strength of the training program and how it was your quote MBA of your real estate career at Radio Shack. What made that time there so special? Because there's a lot of people that listen to our show that are breaking into the industry, and I think that should be looking for certain things in a training program, or people are maybe even in that training program or recently graduated from it on the we'll call it employee side or younger person side. And then there's plenty of people that listen to this show too, who are the trainors, if you will, and training those trainees. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that program, what worked really well, maybe what didn't, and what advice you'd have for people that are both giving and receiving training coming into the industry. Sure. Well, I will say we show up day one and we had a director of real estate kind of around the Western half of the country. It was Bill Clemson. And he slaps this giant three-ring binder on each of our desks and says, all right, we're going to go through this over the next six weeks and memorize it, learn it one way and the other. And we open it up and here we go, off we go. So Bill was an incredibly talented teacher. He was by nature, someone who was a a strong coach and he really cared. He put the time in and it's rare to find someone who really does want to take someone under your wing and take the time to teach. And when you find that person, you really need to grab onto it and take full advantage of it at whatever level or whatever career it is. So Bill took us through that and we went literally from how to read a P&L on a retail of any retail store of any type to what is CAM? How do we address negotiation points? What's our hurdle rates? So it was a progressive six-week program you went through. And in the afternoons, you would sit in on all the other real estate managers or directors' offices and you would just listen to them negotiate. So everyone has their own style. And I think that was one of the most eye-opening things to me is 
there's no one right way to do this. There's some good tips and there's some bad tips, right? And there's some certainly things you shouldn't do. But you get a little bit of everything when you follow sit around for 15 other real estate managers and directors to teach you kind of their style. And you just sit there and watch them work. And to me, that was one of the most educational pieces of it is to realize you've got to develop your own style, the way you approach everything. But at the end of the day, we're all trying to accomplish the same thing. So, But it was truly fascinating to watch Bill could open up a P&L and he would read it and he would say, this store has internal theft. And it's just looking at the, at the certain lines on what metrics are hitting, what or not. You can sit there and there's an operations, former operations guy, sit there and pick it off. So you have a better understanding of why your stores were performing, were not performing. Pretty fascinating training program overall. It sounds like it. It's ironic. It reminds me, given the sector that Radio Shack played in, and given that it's obviously no longer around, but it reminds me of the case study that Jim Collins points out in Good to Great about Circuit City. If you haven't read Good to Great, anybody who's listening to this, I'd strongly recommend it. It was interesting to me that an electronics retailer that's since failed did some things right, clearly, like the program for the real estate training. I thought it was, I think it's really cool that they did something like expose you to a P&L and realizing the importance of that. You know, Because it's very simple. And I'm sure there's a lot of retailers out there who have done this that just tell the real estate managers, don't worry about it. Just go find sites that are at a hard corner or in front of Walmart or are in major metros or whatever it may be. So I appreciate the fact that they did it. And I appreciate the value that you see in it and shedding that light for us. So thank you for that. What was your role like? Obviously, you had an intense training program. After they trained you, what'd you do? Started making calls. So I started off. This was really great. Right out of college, you moved to Rainish. You had a beautiful, huge campus downtown Fort Worth. So you started making calls for your first year to six months. And you call, call, and you do renewals. And that was the way we learned, really, more than anything, is to try and better the option, right? So you'd pick up the phone, and you'd call a landlord, and you would go round and round. Oh, we're going to close the store, right? 101 for anything. But it's right out of college. And you'd go up against some legends in the business. And yeah, okay, kid, yeah, call me when you pass your option. But it was truly eye-opening to stub your toe and learn from it and, and, and come back. And sometimes you'd win, and sometimes you'd lose. And you celebrate the wins and learn from the losses. And it was incredible way to learn the business. And then about a year in, when they realized you're probably not going to burn the house down, they'd move you into a real estate manager role where you started doing new stores and you travel the country and you start doing site selection. I joke about it today. I was like two offices off Sundance Square in downtown Fort Worth, which is a like a beautiful downtown area. And I had a, an admin that answered the phone, Jeff Morrow's office, and like they'd bring you coffee. It was ridiculous. I'm like, I'm 23 years old. And this is the way Radio Shack was doing at the time. And my mom calls my office and she says, Oh my God, somebody's answering the phone. Jeff Morrow's office, he's 24 years old. It was funny. So that was the way before computers were as, as used. We had all the staff. And I look back and I, I've never had the same situation. It's all been downhill from there. I work out of my house. Like, uh, like you're on my own admin. So <laughs> fun story. But there is something to be said. I mean, Radio Shack did go out of business. There are reasons behind that. Honestly, they were phenomenal business operators. The thing that took them down was, I think, cell phones. And the way the fraud was enabled to happen when they would return cell phones on bad credit, that's what took the company down, I think. Yeah. From a business standpoint, they really were solid in the fundamentals. They were great business folks. So you started off doing renewals, which by the way, I really appreciate you. We just skipped right over the breaking news that you shed on our entire listener base of millions and millions of people out there that Retailers occasionally bluff at their renewals. <laughs> that is news to me. I didn't know that that happened. No, we really don't. That never <laughs> happens. It's all the truth. So you started doing renewals and then you did move into a new store site selection role. Is that correct? I did. I did. Just kind of keep going. The show's always better when the guest talks. Yeah, no, it was great. I mean, you travel with your bosses, and your VPs, and your directors, and they would all have little tips and you would learn the business from. The hard corner, we did a lot of pads, right? At the time, Radio Shack was moving from more inline to pads if you could do it. We had great credit at the time, so it was easy to get folks on the phone. And But you head out, you tour your markets. We had great software at the time, really before most people had it. Radio Shack, I think it was Sites USA, but it was a rudimentary forecasting program and showed your customer base so you could overlay. I think we had, like before computers, you had the plastic overlays like you'd use on an overhead projector in the old days. And you lay over all the different layers of your different stores, customer traffic, CRM data today that you'd be able to look at and understand because we had phone numbers at the time. So RadioShack was on the cutting edge of all of that. So we use that data and really kind of look to fill in holes. When you have 7,200 stores, 
it's really looking for that next best opportunity that's not going to kill one of your other stores. So I did a lot of relocations as well back in those days. Unbelievable experience. Between the fact that there were 7,200 stores worth of data at your fingertips, you're working on renewals, relocations, expansion, you had a great trading program. It set the foundation for obviously a very successful career on the retailer side within our industry. So that said, take us through. What happens next? Yeah. So Radio Shack, there was, I guess it was a tech downturn, early 2000s. We had a couple of layoffs. So I'm the new guy. So I'm starting to think, eh, if we're going to have any more layoffs, I may or may not be the guy here. So I was recruited by a uh, startup haircutter. It was a children's haircutting chain called Cool Cuts for Kids. And the president of the company started calling me and recruiting me to come over there. So I interviewed and was actually really impressed with the management team. And I'm thinking, wow, this is my private equity. This is going to be a chance to go public and maybe make some money. This was great. Right out of college, right? So ended up going over there and it was a fantastic group of people. It's everything. I didn't have a radio shack where you had a great staff and a huge construction team and everything. It was like five of us to do everything. So it was the polar opposite of the environment I had at Radio Shack, where you have a cast of thousands to help you do what you needed to do. We were on a shoestring budget trying to make things work. And it was probably the second chapter of my my MBA, if you would. Because at that point, I had to start not only reading the leases, but going through with the attorney and making sure the I was dotted and T was crossed. And every estoppel came through, I had to visit to approve personally and sign off on. So it was an entirely different level of learning in that environment. but. It was also incredibly happening because I would present to the board and we would run the strategy. And it's like, you tell us where we need to go. So the president of the company, I would sit down and we'd start looking at demographics. And we invested really early in Thompson and Associates. I think we started with Buxton. They were great. And we actually kept Buxton along with Thompson for a while, looking at their data and customer segmentation, really psychographics as they started to come out and understanding who our customers were. And it would help us open, determine where we were going to open. So obviously the Sun Belt was huge. We did... Chicago was a growing market for young families. So we did that and uh, opened a couple of other states. And uh, it was great presenting to the board, literally taking the strategy and then having a chance to meet with veterans in retail who were on our board. And it's just incredible opportunity for someone 25 years old. Yeah. You've had like both spectrums and exposure to every type of deal structure <laughs> in like 24 months. <laughs> yeah. Great credit to no credit. I mean, it was uh, totally different. It's <laughs> pretty unbelievable. It's all starting to make sense now. So what happens? Yeah. So I was there about 18 months. And the goal all along was to be... We didn't think we'd grow large enough to go public because you have to have such a store base to do that. But we did think we would be acquired by one of our larger competitors. And at the time, Regis Corporation was the biggest in the business. So Regis was growing not only organically, but they were buying up entire chains. And they had 60-some-odd brands, I think, when they invested in us. And part of the investment was investment, and they would put someone on the board, as well as provide assistance in all business areas. So we were lucky enough to have a gentleman named Chris Burley join the board. I learned a ton from as well from him when he joined. He ran a huge division of, of Regis Salon's corporate stores, but he was our, our designee for the board. And... We ended up traveling. I ended up traveling with the Regis directors just to kind of get a feel for how they did what they did. I mean, they were the biggest thing in the industry and had a couple of great trips. And then I went on one trip with one of their directors and I had all of our data and had it all laid out. And we did not see eye to eye on very much. And he reports back to HQ, oh, this kid doesn't know what he's doing. So I ended up getting a phone call from the chief development officer for Regis. She goes, hey, I'm coming to town. I'd like you to show me around Dallas. So I'm thinking, okay. Sounds great. So the president of the company, I and chief development officer for Regis and I hop in the car and we start driving and I pick her up at the hotel and I get the coldest reception known to man with like a stiff arm handshake and she introduces herself and I'm like, oh boy, I think the gun's in the back here. I mean, that'd be having... Uh... <laughs> the gun's in the back, which isn't that crazy in Texas. I mean, yeah. Right, right. Literally. So we end up touring the Dallas market. And I roll out the computer and I'm showing, well, here's the, the logic, here's why we do what we do. And was showing her all the demographics and why we don't go in certain areas and why we do and all the logic behind it. And conversation got better and got better. And we had a great lunch. And I dropped her back off at the hotel and I get a big hug. And she goes, I'll be in touch. I'm like, okay, they survived today. After that, I ended up getting a call from her the next week and asked to join Regis staff at corporate. 
So I still handled all the stuff for Cool Cats nationally, but was now employed by the larger company. So I ended up having Texas as my uh, territory and then took on Florida shortly thereafter. So Wow. Something to be said for being prepared. Obviously, you knew the Dallas market extraordinarily well. And something to be said for if you put in the effort and you know what you're doing, the work kind of proves itself even when somebody has a gun in the backseat of their car. A metaphorical (laughs) gun, just to make sure that we're clear for anybody listening. It was a metaphorical one that Jeff and I were joking about. But I'm sure you (laughs) felt the pressure and sounds like you performed. So congratulations. Even if it's a little bit delayed, that sounds pretty impressive. Good for you. It was fun. That whole chapter was fantastic as well. And then moving on to Regis was a whole other level of education and franchising. I'd never worked in the franchise world before. And that was, I think I had a hundred different franchise partners to work with in Texas and Florida. And it's eye-opening. It was a great experience. I wouldn't trade it for the world, but it was entirely different than working on a true corporate staff with corporate hurdles and here's what you do. And you manage one set of expectations versus a hundred or more. So So I can say this because I'm a franchisee, but franchisees can be crazy. (laughs) Some are better than others, I will say, but they're all passionate. There's no question. Yeah. Tell us about that dynamic. I mean, you go from working you know, from a large company straight out of school with somebody getting you coffee and answering your phone for you to, look, I'll shoot you straight directly from a franchisee's mouth. Like Our lives are on the line, right? Like We have debt. We have all of our cash into these businesses and they have to work. And so there's a sense of urgency with everything that they're doing. You know, at the time, yeah, 26 years old, 27, whatever I am at this point, and you're meeting with somebody and their entire life savings is on the line. You say, here's exactly what you should do. Some of them believe you, some of them don't, right? And they're like, okay, kid, tell me what else I can look at here. So, but no, it was great. I mean, you just have to articulate your case and show the facts. And and some people want to go down that path and some people don't, and that's okay. I get it. I mean, I never criticized anybody for having that level of passion. We all make mistakes, right? Who knows if I was right in that case or not, but... They live in their markets, they do it. So I was always respectful of what they wanted to do with it. But certainly everyone did have an opinion and they were very passionate about their business, as they should be. Sure. So talk to us about the rest of your tenure at Regis and sort of what happens thereafter. Regis was great. It was another couple of years. I think it was two, two and a half years past that. We had some leadership changes. So the lady who came to visit me in Dallas was named Melissa Bowden. She's still around in the industry today. And Melissa left the company and moved to. Disney stores and children's place. And as much as I enjoyed working with Regis, there was, a, again, a downturn in the economy. This is what, oh, this would have been 2008. So obviously, we're going into some rough times. Yeah, apparently some stuff went down in 2008 financially. A few things in 08. And to couple that, there was a long hair cycle that came in, which unless you're in the hair business, you would never think anything of. But the cycle of the haircut went to, I don't know, I'm going to quote exact specifics, but something along the lines of, every other haircut from what it was back when really short, tight hair was in style. Well, that'll wreck your business when you're counting on on what? 30 to 40% more, more haircuts. So wait a second. So you're saying that there was a roughly 50% reduction in... I won't say 50, maybe 30, but it was a significant... Whatever it is, that is substantial, especially when the business strategy is open stores every three miles apart in every grocery anchor shopping center in America. Well, and this was in every corner. Regis had 67 brands and they wanted to own all three of the corners because if they didn't, their competitor would. And that was at the time. And they've clearly changed their entire business platform since. But at the time, 67 brands, we won every corner, all four of we can get them. Wow. So it was the most aggressive company I've ever seen from a growth standpoint, but it was designed to protect and insulate the business, right? I will not claim to be cool at any point. Certainly not when I was... This is in the mid to late 2000s, right? Going into 08. Yeah, mid to late. That's right. So while I was certainly was not cool, I was definitely attempting to be cool. And I'm one of my part of the attempt to be cool was to have longer hair. I do remember this. See, you were part of the contributor to. Uh... Well, when I was doing it, I didn't mean to compromise your job, Jeff. That's my fault. <laughs> I owe you an apology. That's all I guess right. We'll forgive you. Hopefully, we've made up for it by the fact that you were on a worldwide, just astoundingly popular podcast called Limitless. <laughs> More than made up for. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so interesting pivot though to go to the children's place because that doesn't feel like a recession-proof business either in 2008. I mean, it's interesting to me that you went from going from a necessity like the haircutting business to, I mean, the least necessity business you can think of, buying toys or whatever. And that's another thing too. I think people would love to hear a little bit more about what the children's place does for, for those who don't know. But yeah, yeah, talk to us about that dynamic. Well, we had Disney stores at the time too. 
So I get the call from Melissa. Actually, I reached out to her and said, hey, things are getting a little dicey around here. We'd love to, to see what's coming up. She was like, you know, I'm going to have some opportunities. Stay tuned. And ended up going over to Children's Place, which had all the rights to Disney stores at that time. That ended up spinning back to Walt Disney Corporation. About a year after I got there, I guess, we ended up spinning it back to Walt Disney. And that was part of the strategy that Disney wanted to control their brand directly at that point. But Children's Place is a off-price, pure-play children's clothing retailer. So they are actually more affordable than at the time Jim Marie would have been, or really Janie and Jack, or any of the other children's clothing places. Unless you'd go maybe into a mall, some of the higher end, like, you know, the name of the other boutique shops. But you really couldn't find much better deals short of going to Walmart. And it was fashion, and they had some really great product they were putting out at the time. So it turned out that the best thing that ever happened at Children's Place was the recession, because people shopped down from the higher brands into Children's Place. So by joining there, part of why I went was to help start to take them out of some of the malls, because the mall occupancy was getting so high, it was difficult to maintain the margins. And they wanted to explore growing the chain in addition to the regional malls, which was still the core of the business, but growing into non-mall environments. So I'd done that most of my career. So we had a great run, both in Texas and Florida, all the stores still around today, operating in a non-mall environment. And they are probably far more profitable to be my guess with the difference in occupancy and whatnot. So, Well, you put them into great markets to begin with and now they're thriving. So all the credit to you for that. Well, it took a big team to do it, but it was a fun project. Children's Place, it was really some of the more fun years of my career as well. Getting to grow Greenfield and non-mall environment. Wow. Again, another like transformative opportunity in your toolbox for you to lever up as far as providing value for a retailer and their real estate strategy. I mean, you've put yourself in the right position clearly at every role so far in your career. We're on role number three, I believe. And the exposure and the experience that you got, it makes sense to where you to end up to where you are today, which we'll get to here in a little bit. So the children's place goes well. Take us through your story. What happens next? So it's great. I loved it. Every day there was fantastic. It was one of the highlights of my career as well, being there. And then I had started to think, you know, I may want to look at an opportunity to go head up a department. So I interviewed with a company in California, went out west, interviewed, all went well. I get there and realized about the first two weeks that this is not a fit. So no names, won't even bring up the concept of the chain. But I got out there and spent a little bit of time in California. I was about to move up and move out there and thought, you know what, let's call this what it is. This isn't going to be a fit. Whether it's in your career or whether it's a professor you're working with, there's always one in your life that you're going to run into and say, this isn't going to be a good fit. So I ended up leaving that and coming back to Texas. Did a little bit of consulting for about six months. And then the phone rang. Common theme here. My old friend Melissa called me again and said, hey, I'm over at Burlington Stores now. Would you be interested in coming over and helping us out in Texas? So went back in-house with Burlington. It was kind of interesting. Melissa left shortly after I started. And we had obviously reported directly to Mike Shanahan, who I report to today. But Mike has grown and throughout the uh, organization. Now we have Gail Edgar as our executive vice president. And she's been incredible to have on board for the last seven years or so as well. So yeah, the last nine years been with Burlington. Had some growth while here. Started as a director, moved up to senior director. And now have a phenomenal team as a VP of real estate for the country. For the entire country. Mm-hmm. It's a heck of a... I don't want to call it an ending. I mean, you're still pretty young and have plenty of runway ahead of you, but it's a hell of a place to be at a company that has been... You want to talk about a great company that is absolutely thriving. We could probably do it another entire podcast, if you will, or a case study about the success that Burlington's had. And before we get into more of your time at Burlington, because it takes up the lion's share of your career from a time perspective, there were some interesting observations, at least that I picked up on from your exit at the children's place to the time with the, we'll call it the unnamed retailer. You leave for better opportunity. You're excited to head up a department and you feel like it was your time, which I don't think anybody would critique you for. In fact, I would commend you for it. It shows ambition. It shows wanting to become a leader dating back to your scout days. (laughs) What I really thought was interesting and what I really want to dig into a little bit, how long were you at that unnamed retailer? About 90 days. Yeah. A lot of people... And look, there's a couple things going for you, right? You spent years, not weeks or months at your prior companies that you worked for. So you had credibility built in. But I want to point out, 
I commend you for that. Like that is something that not a lot of people would do and they would be freaking out. What about my reputation? Or, oh, I better wait to jump until I get a better job somewhere else and I'll just suffer or do whatever. I love that you followed your gut and you did what was right by you. What made you know that... It doesn't matter what made you know it was wrong. When you figured out and you knew quickly that it was wrong, what gave you the courage to ultimately say, I can't do this even though I don't have a great plan in place and I'm just going to do this consulting thing? You know, I had a great group of contacts that I could rely on, a great group of relationships in the industry. And I reached out to a couple of folks and said, am I crazy? And kind of chatted with where we were and what was going on. And they said, not at all. You do what you got to do. And at the time, I was up to uproot my entire life and move. I hadn't left Texas yet, right? I'm commuting back and forth and had a temporary housing out there and thought, I'm going to up in my entire life to move into something that I know is not going to be a fit. Let's just let's call this what it is right now. And then I'll go back and had an opportunity to accept some consulting if I wanted it. So it was a soft landing. It wasn't as if I was completely blowing everything up, but not exactly what I wanted to do or where I wanted to be. But you know what? I didn't want to make a bigger mistake than the one that I guess unintentionally made on the front end. So, Sure. Well, kudos to you for that. You talked about your soft landing and being able to rely on contacts and relationships again. Perfect segue. You're making my job easy today, by the way. Thank you. Let's talk mentors. Sure. I'm sure when you were thinking about leaving this retailer who will go unnamed, you probably wanted advice because what you did was bold. Or even when you were switching jobs from Radio Shack to Regis or from Regis to the Children's Place or going from consulting to Burlington, talk to me and our audience about who your mentors are or at least the impact that they've had on your career for you. Sure. Well, Steve King has always been from the early stages. He's always been a sounding board and someone that I've always relied on his opinions. Lex Pulitz, he was a guy I worked with at Radio Shack. I mean, I always relied on his thoughts and his counsel as well. Armin Filippi, he was the president of the startup, invaluable. Charlie Northington uh, was a broker of mine, but now runs Endeavor down in, in Austin. And he's another incredible contact that has gotten great advice. And again, Melissa Bowden, she's always been a recurring mentor for me from very early on, as I mentioned a couple of times. So Just so this story comes full circle, I just want to make sure I, it's crystal clear. This is the person who we thought was going to shoot you in the car. That's the one. Damn, Jeff, that's pretty impressive. I mean, one day... You think she's going to shoot you in the car. By lunchtime, she's hugging you. And then years later, you've now taken two jobs from her. Is that right? Three when you got from Burlington. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well played. Man, oh man. That's pretty impressive. Hell of a salesman. Well, she's been a great mentor as well. No question. And humble along the way. I love that. So you're at Burlington. Things are going well. Let's just go ahead and point out the elephant in the room. What has it been like being at Burlington the last nine years? And for those who maybe aren't ingrained in retail, real estate, or are focused on different sectors or whatever it means within our industry. Jeff, in just a couple of seconds here, or take a minute if you will, tell us about the meteoric rise that Burlington's had. What do you attribute that to? And any data points or... I don't know, the stock price, whatever it may be, or store counts or whatever it's been to sort of demonstrate how ridiculous things have been in a good way over there. Well, I will say I have never worked. We've had two administrations, if you will, now since I've been with Burlington. We started off with Tom Kingsbury and Fred Hands and all of their executive corps, too many to name. Phenomenal leadership that, that Burlington had, both when Bain came in. When I started, Bain was still involved with Burlington. And we had the opportunity to work with some of the Bain folks really to kind of help craft our strategy. And some of the smartest guys in any room work for Bain Capital, there's no question. And getting to know and, and work with Tom, who's now the interim CEO at Kohl's. Fred Hands was our COO. Then we worked directly under Fred's leadership. Just incredible leadership and incredible cultures that were built. Gail Ecker came in and brought amazing process changes to Burlington as our SVP, then EVP. Mike Shanahan, one of the best leaders in the business, was trustee for ICSC. And I don't know a person that will speak ill about Mike Shanahan. So he's a mentor to me. Gail's a mentor here as well. And I think that having the right leaders in place has really helped the company grow. I will say we have new leaders now. Michael O'Sullivan came from Ross Stores. We have the entire new management team as well. Our new CEO, our COO, Travis, came from there as well. Jennifer Vecchio is our, our chief merchant. Incredibly talented people in our leadership now. Again, Gail and Mike are still in place. 
I will also touch on culture. Burlington is obsessed with being the best place to work in retail. We hold ourselves to a very high standard of how we do business ethically and the way we treat our people, the way we engage with each other. It's just as important as the results of the business. I think that building a team that's happy to come to work every day really does make a difference. Totally agree. How many stores were at Burlington when you started in 2013? Yeah, so I wish I could remember. 400 and change probably. And we're approaching 900 today. Wow. All because of phenomenal real estate site selections, thanks to large part to you. Uh, we have an incredibly talented team to help do that. It's not just one of us for sure. So we've had at the time of this recording, roughly 30 people, give or take, be interviewed on this show. And I've asked every one of them, and I almost forgot to ask you about your most embarrassing story so far. But I'm going to make it even easier on you. Okay. Because I'm going to go first. It's, this All is right. not my most embarrassing story. That's a tough bar to jump over. I have plenty. I probably embarrass myself at least a couple times a day. But you talked about how nobody could speak poorly about Mike Shanahan. And I have to agree with that wholeheartedly to the point to where I embarrassed myself on my first and only interaction with Mike Shanahan. So we're at Open Air Conference last year. And I ask a question, what have you. Mike answers it wonderfully. And we chatted for two minutes after I got his business card. And like I do, like I try to do, and I'd like to think I do a pretty good job of it, of following up just about everybody, if not everybody I get a business card from. I wanted to make sure I reached out to him. And I had been doing a lot of them. You meet a lot of phenomenal people at this particular conference. And so it's important that you follow up with people. So I get a little bit... What I would at the time thought was efficient, but the reality was... I guess I'll call it lazy. And I put F slash... you know, Important emphasis on the slash. You from <laughs> OAC. As the subject on an email... Mike, hey, I just want to let you know it was great meeting you. Appreciate your time. Like, let me know if you ever need anything, whatever. And then I get a call like three minutes later from a number in New Jersey. And I'm like, hello, this is Aaron. He's like, Aaron, it's Mike Shanahan with Burlington. How you doing? I'm like, I'm great, Mike. Like, that was fast. I don't know if you got my email. He's like, Yeah, I got it. I just wanted to make sure we were good and you didn't have any issues with me. You said F you. And I was like, <laughs> Oh no, Mike. Because he was like, Maybe you didn't like the way I answered your question or something in front of all those people. So I thought that said a lot about Mike because he oh, a, was making sure that his reputation was protected. B, he was direct and candor. It was just like, yeah, like let's make sure if we have an issue, we hash it out. And that was it. Couldn't have been any further from the truth. Really, it was just me embarrassing myself by putting "fu" in an email. <laughs> and so now that I've set the stage, that's fantastic. That sounds very much like Mike. Yeah, follow up. It also sounds very much like me to do something that stupid. <laughs> so we're all acting on brand here and being our genuine selves. It seems like so. Now that you've had a chance to absorb mine, what is your embarrassing story? Well, I mean, I first started as a leasing rep at Radio Shack. I, you call and you fight like hell. You're going to get every term. I think we had a deal at Sheridan Plaza in Hollywood, Florida, as if it's not ingrained in my memory here, which I think I've done three deals with with different retailers since. But it was owned by a developer that uh, office out of Dallas. And I'm going round and round and round. And this guy is just ruthless. And he said, nah, I'm not going to renew you. Not going to keep you in here. I'm going to kick you out. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose my job. This thing makes a boatload of money, yada, yada. So I was talking again, relationships to Mr. King. And I said, man, do you know this guy? And he goes, oh yeah, I know him. Matter of fact, what are you doing on uh, Thursday at five o'clock? I mean, we're probably working, but he was like, you need to take off early. Come with me at three o'clock. We're going to go to Dallas. So, all right, sure. There's a holiday party. It's a pretty famous holiday party they throw around Christmas time in Dallas for different retailer folks in the retail business. So we go over there and I run into the guy and he's like towers over me. He's still in the business. He's had a real estate for a company here in Fort Worth now today still. And I start chatting with him and it's clear he's just having a good time and he had no intent of doing anything. And I'm sitting here like, this guy's Phil. Oh, and let me rewind it before I knew who he was. I'm like, Steve goes, hey, you need to tell, talk to him about your I said, man, this guy, Phil, I'm working with, is killing me. Well, it's Phil that I'm talking to. And he didn't tell me that that's Phil. So I'm like, man, this guy won't even take the call. He's just totally blowing me off. So he's dying. So yeah, to this day, I'm buddies with the guy. Anyway, yeah, it's, <laughs> I'm going to lose my job here. And I walk up and start saying, man, this guy, Phil's killing me to Phil. And ended up getting the deal. And he said, call me tomorrow. We'll wrap it up. So I got to tell you, Jeff, I don't know if it's the lighting from your Zoom in your room, but you're a little red right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's still, I still like, oh my gosh. But yeah, to this day. Yeah, that's great though. But you had this knack for digging yourself out of these holes. I mean, you're about to get 
fired in one car tour. And the next thing you know, you're hugging her and you're getting jobs from her for the rest of your career. And now you're friends with Phil, who you were not speaking highly <laughs> of right in front of his face about him in the third person. <laughs> like, that's pretty impressive. So anyway, it's better to be lucky, I guess, in some cases. There you go. <laughs> there you go. What's the biggest curveball you've ever been thrown in your career? Well, other than the trip to California. Yeah. That was probably a pretty poor question, but <laughs> maybe you have another one for us. I mean, curveball, I've had a pretty streamlined career. I mean, I've, have I had things that I could do differently, probably. But as far as major curveballs, that's probably the biggest one that I've faced. I can't off the top of my head come up with something that completely blew me away. That's totally fair. Almost uprooting your life to California and then pivoting three months later after you thinking you're getting a great job is a good one. So what's the craziest deal you've ever worked on? <laughs> well, that, probably that one with Phil, but there's been several. I mean, we've had deals and I won't name developers, but we had this one guy, we, we, we suggested he bring in a contractor. He was building a ground up center and it was a new guy in the business. And I said, you know, I don't think you're going to get what you, you plan permitted by the city. You really need to talk to this guy. So we brought in a, a contractor to coach him on it. I mean, he literally, it's like the guy's like 25 years old trying to build a power center. And we brought in this contractor and he goes, yeah, you're not going to be able to put a bridge in on the specific property to an adjoining property that was a requirement from us as an academy and a bunch of folks who were going in. And I'm trying to just help the guy out here. So you really need to revisit your plan here, both to keep the store in time, but to help the guy from killing himself here. And <laughs> he didn't. He bought a bridge on the internet that's pre-manufactured and had it shipped to the site built out the entire shopping center and the city didn't permit the bridge. He had to remove it and build it for like a million five or something. Meanwhile, every one of his tenants is sitting in liquidated damages. And I'm like, this is brutal. So that's one of the crazier deals I worked on and didn't end well for the guy. But I doubt it did. Yeah. Especially at 25 yeah. years old. Not good. So before I get even deeper and philosophical... This is a podcast about successful people in real estate like yourself. You used a term that maybe not every one of our listeners will know, liquidated damages. Why don't you give us the, the quick spiel on that? A liquidated damages, yeah. I mean, it's just, I guess, the clause that we put in, in our deal specifically to maintain schedules. If we're going to plan sales weeks and we're going to, to hire staff and whatnot, we need to, to guarantee that the store is going to be delivered within a certain parameter. So we structure our deals to where there's a clause that if you're X many days late, we try to give a cushion. It's a soft landing. You hit X many days in liquidated damages, and then there's at some point a hammer with a larger number, and then it tolls day for day until you actually deliver the property. But I tell all of our developers that we don't want, we're not in the business of collecting liquidated damages. We're in the business of opening stores on time. And at the end of the day, if you tell me when you can deliver this, I will let you pick any date you want and we'll put it in the pipeline whenever you want us to do it. But you got to live by the dates you're going to give us, or we have to build these liquidated damages up. So it's just a way to recoup losses and to, Hold people accountable to dates. Unfortunately, once in a while, you have to collect them, but that's not our goal. We certainly try to partner. I will say at Burlington, more than any other retailer I've worked with, we are obsessed with maintaining good relationships with our developers. We want to be the first call. And if there's a way to incentivize you to make up time, we'll probably consider a deal on that. But it's just every deal stands alone and it's designed to, to make sure that when you sign a contract, everyone delivers per the agreement. Sure. Appreciate the education there today for our listeners out there. All right, back into the deep stuff. So obviously, we've talked about a wide range of listeners here. What advice do you have for someone who hears this that is interested in breaking in to commercial real estate or is maybe 5 years or less in that's trying to catapult to the next step like you've been able to do so successfully? Well, it's a tough business to break into, right? I mean, that's the one thing. There's no one path to get here. I was lucky to be able to apply for a job and walk into that. But I would just say develop good habits in whatever your career is. Make a lot of phone calls and try and build relationships, certainly in your 20s too. When you're young, work to learn. Maybe it's not the highest paying job, but take an opportunity to work for a developer or if you can get in with a retailer in a junior position and then move into it. I know we're open to promoting from within. Most retailers probably would be too. Uh, part of it's your background. I would say... Finance degrees are great. You don't have to be though. There's no clear-cut path. But having a good understanding of the real estate market, spending your time in an internship, it's a great way to get your foot in the door. And then just develop good habits. Return your calls. And I will say there's a lot of brokerage folks that I've worked with over the years. It's a lot of times brokers cross into the side of the business as well. And there's two or three houses that unless 
someone young in the business calls them 20, 30 times, they're not going to take the call and say, all right, this person has what it takes. He's going to be that unrelenting or she's going to be that unrelenting. We'll bring him in and I give him an interview. So it's interesting. Be persistent. Love that. What's the one book that changed your life? And we accept more than one if there's been a few that you feel like are worth sharing. Changed my life. Yeah. Well, I will say, cliche, but there was a book that's still wildly popular, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And it just changed my entire perspective on how to approach how you build your career. There's another couple of books out there that I read that are ancient now. Who Moved My Cheese? I mean, they're cliche books that everyone reads today. But two or three of those really were the ones that to me were eye-opening on how you frame your streams of income and not just rely on one opportunity out there for your career. And you have to anticipate change. Love that. Many years from now, we're all going to be really pissed off if it happens sooner. But many years from now, you're going to make the decision to retire, jet set, whatever it is, sail off into the sunset. And when that happens, it'll be a big deal because you know so many people have wonderful relationships. And the articles and publications will come out and they'll report it. What do you want those reports to say about your legacy in our industry? That's a tough one. I know. We ask it every episode (laughs) and nobody's ever prepared for it. I've even thought about as the host, what would I say if somebody asked me that? And I'm really glad that I don't have to answer it. So I'm going to put the pressure on you to do that. Post discretion. That's right. I guess I would say that he operated with integrity, honored what he said he was going to do, held up to his agreements and was kind in the business. I love that. Short, sweet, simple, and true based on my experiences in dealing with you, which is why I'm so humbled and on behalf of our entire audience, so appreciative that you were able to join us. Jeff, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom here today. And we just can't thank you enough for joining us. It's been an honor. Appreciate you having me on. Thanks for listening to Limitless, How to Crush It in Commercial Real Estate. I hope you were able to extract one piece of value out of today's episode. That's my only goal. If you did, in fact, get some value out of it, let me know via LinkedIn, Instagram, or through a review wherever you get your podcasts.